Hello, frazzled woman. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Are you a type A, an imposter, an activity addict, or maybe even a recovering perfectionist? Are you kind of burning out? And do you secretly crave a hug or a high five? If that's you, you're in the right place in time and space. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin-Snyder. Before we go any further, this podcast features adult women having adult conversation. And sometimes it's potty-mouthed. If you have little ones or folks around that won't pardon that kind of French, now's a good time to throw those headphones on. Each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman who is out there leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. Before I introduce you all to today's guest, Sarah Williams, I had a couple of things that I wanted to say. And first and most importantly is thank you. When I started this show and had been planning it earlier this year, you know, even I have my moments of doubt thinking, would anyone even listen? Or would I be recording this show, introducing you to some of the cool women I know and respect and admire, and no one would listen? And I can safely say that is not the case. And I want to thank each and every one of you. And if I could do that personally, I probably would. But there wouldn't be a show without you. And every time I see that people are listening and sharing and complimenting my guests and connecting with them, there is nothing that makes me happier to hear that I'm helping to highlight some really cool women and what they're doing and the really amazing work they're putting out into the world. So thank you again and and happy holidays. And the holidays or December and into January are a time where it gets a little bit quiet client work wise for me and allows me to have some time to do some deep planning work for what I want my next year 2017 to look like. And one of my goals that I've I've been I've been working on, some of you have heard it and and heard about the project and even participated in it, but it's the 33K project. And what I'm trying to do is collect 33,000 handwritten original task lists from women around the globe. So literally I'm asking women for the paper that they would likely throw away or hopefully recycle and to send to me so I can someday, when I've collected 33,000 of them, I can make an art installation to help change the conversation about stress, about obligation, and about desire for modern women. So I've written a bunch of stuff on the website about this, but my goal in 2017 is to go from collecting about, I would say, 50 task lists a month to, by the end of the year, collecting 500 or more per month. And so I'm putting this out there because I think this is kind of like whenever I've signed up for a race or a half marathon or something like that, you know, the first thing I do is register and then immediately tell people because there's just some personal accountability that happens when you you sort of speak up and say, this is what I want to do. And I'm sharing that with all of you in the hopes that, one, you'll check it out And you can find all sorts of information, including my mailing address, at the short link VTL, so Victor Tom Larry, dot life, so L-I-F-E, 
forward slash 33k task lists. And so that has tons of common questions, things like that all answered. And as most importantly, the mailing list. And I'm I'm sharing that with you in the hopes that if you have a piece of trash known as a task list that you are going to throw away that instead you shove them into an envelope and send them to me. Thanks everyone for indulging me with my shameless 33k task list plug. And let's dive into the show because I'm excited for you to meet Sarah Williams. She is a strong, hardworking friend of mine. She's the owner of a club field hockey program and one of the head coaches and a former athlete herself. So that leads to so many questions that we end up covering in this interview around burnout in middle school and even teenage girls. Like we're already seeing that at that point in their life as they try to juggle academics and social life and athletics. And, you know, we also talk about surviving and even turning around entrepreneurial funks because Sarah is also the business owner and does a lot of the financial planning and business planning and cat wrangling that needs to be done as a small business owner. And also we talk about rivalry among women and how it can be leveraged for good, healthy motivation. We touch on success. We talk about what it's like to be a modern woman and things we can consider to do better or even let go of. Anyways, I'm just babbling. So without any further ado, I'm, I'm going to cut over to the interview. Hey, Sarah, I'm so psyched you're here this morning. How are you? I'm wonderful this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. I, I know you're a busy woman, so we'll we'll try to keep to our time today. But I, I wanted us to start off this morning because I, I think the work that you do is so, so interesting, you know, especially working with younger, younger girls, you know, all the way up into like high school, college age women, you know, as the owner of Element Athletics, and you're one of the head coaches. Maybe to get our listeners on the same page as as me, can you talk a little bit about what you do at Element and maybe how you sort of discovered that was the path for you? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I coach and run Element Athletics, which is a club field hockey program. We help develop young women in the sport of field hockey specifically, both academically and athletically. We believe um, that we have an impact on our players both on and off the field and that to be successful, you need to be um, strong academically, especially if you're going to be an athlete. So for myself, I looked back and I, when you asked me this question and I, I don't know if there was ever an aha moment for me when I realized that I would be a coach and want to mentor high school and middle school girls. Um, But I was a high school and club and collegiate field hockey player myself. And since my first year in college, um, I've held various coaching positions at all different levels. And what I learned at the different coaching levels is I enjoy working with the high school and middle school aged athlete the most. I enjoy being able to help them grow and excel both on and off the field. I also take what I learned from my coaches and the ones who had the most impact on myself and my teammates. And I want 
to continue that and give it to other young women. As my athletic career as a child, as a young adult, and still now has played a large role in who I am today. It gave me confidence. It taught me how to be a leader, taught me about sportsmanship. Um, It helped create morals and values within myself. So I work with young women and girls today to help promote both the sport and what I was taught throughout my journey. I want to pass on the positive impact that sports has played in my life. Because when did your journey with field hockey actually begin? My journey with field hockey began when I was a freshman in high school. So almost 15 years ago. No way. So it was actually high school that you came in. You you hadn't even played as a girl. Were sports always a part of your life, though? Sports were always a part of my life. I remember playing in my first soccer and basketball games when I was six years old. Um, my no. parents. <laughs> I remember those games where you're like, you just ran at the ball like little chickens, right? Yes. And everybody <laughs> is swarming the same thing and nobody knows which direction you're actually supposed to be going. Uh, but- or you were the kid picking flowers in the, you know, in the backfield. Right. Or having a tenter tantrum <laughs> in the middle of the field, right? Um, and it still happens today. And those are, we work with kids, um, you know, as young as eight. And so we have, we do still have some of those moments with, with children that we work with. Um, I think often a misconception of what I do is that I only work with high school age and that my sole purpose is helping them get recruited to play at the collegiate level. It's a snippet of, of what I do on a regular basis. I work with athletes ages eight to 18 Um, And then I still stay connected to our athletes as they move on and play at the collegiate level or as they move on and go to college and have families and, and then their kids come back and have started playing or their siblings. Field hockey becomes a household name for many um, and for generations, but it might not be a huge sport in the United States, but it is a very small and connected group. Um, And especially it is a woman dominant sport in the United States. So there's a lot of celebrating. There's a lot of helping push each other forward. That's cool. And I guess that's a question I had, and you and I have talked about this in the past. Like, what is the percentage of of female to male in the sport? Like, do you actually see men that are players? Yeah, there's actually field hockey is second to soccer everywhere else in the world except for the United States. Um, It's a huge international sport. And men, men, primarily men play in other countries. And for myself, I grew up playing on an adult team in high school. That's how I really learned to play was from all of these international um, males and females. And so I was, in, I was introduced to knowing that men and women play. Um, but right, in the United States, most people think that it's only women. And we do have a men's national team in the United States. And we also, uh, more and more boys are starting to play at the younger ages. And actually within my state, Massachusetts, where I currently live, and I, on top of um, running element athletics, I coach a local high school team. Um, I've had boys play on my high school team before. Very cool. Because I think, you know, my, my only experience with field hockey was, because I played soccer from the time I was probably, I think like 
under six, I started playing like at that age and then played all the way up through the end of high school, you know, whether it be on the high school team or, or and and a club team, you know, it was sort of like high school during the week, club team on the weekend kind of thing. Where I grew up in Central Mass, it was it was pretty much like girls played field hockey, boys played football or soccer. And then I think it was my sophomore year, that was when my high school actually got a girls soccer team. Oh, wow. But for the for the longest time, it was really like girls played field hockey. That was your choice. You either did that or cross country. And so that was that was kind of it. And then, like I said, by the time I got to high school, it was starting to open up more for girls. Like we were starting to have more choices and more access. There's more and more choices for girls to play sports year round. Um, there's for my high school alone that I coach for, there's three or four in the fall another three or four in the um, winter and again in the spring. The other thing is that um, when coaching for a high school, you're an extension of the classroom. And for my club program, Elements, um, we also believe that we're an extension of the classroom in some ways. Our players play year-round with us. However, we still believe that our athletes should be playing multiple sports and not choosing a single sport because you learn from different coaches, different sports, you use different muscles for every sport that you play and that there is a higher rate of burnout at an early age if you only play one sport nonstop year round. So where does that where does that burnout come from? Like is it is it like the pressure girls are putting on themselves to perform or is it something else? There's a lot of pressure um, to perform. There's a lot of pressure to Many athletes that we work with are type A. <laughs> Who, we um, don't know anything about that, do we, Sarah? <laughs> no, nothing, nothing about that at all. Not one myself. Um, we, <laughs> they're, they're either type A and they put a lot of pressure on themselves or there's pressure, underlying pressure from a parent, whether it's explicitly stated or not. Um, there's an expectation for women to excel and young girls to excel in all areas. Which, yes, you want to be, you want to do the best that you can in, in everything. Um, but in some cases, we have to recognize that we're not, that we have a certain skill set we're very strong in and another one we might be weak in. And it's okay to identify that. And it's okay to ask for help when it's needed. So during the high school season, I really push that academics is huge. You cannot play if your grades are not at a certain level. That transfers into the collegiate level as well. It When you go to school and play at the collegiate level, it doesn't matter division one, two, or three. There's an expectation that you will do well in the classroom as well as on the field. And your time has to be so well managed or else you won't be successful. So I think that starting at an early age of understanding the expectations and learning how to deal with them and the pressure can be very hard for young girls. Recently this fall, I'll use an example. I have a player who plays, is very strong in two sports, which is fabulous. We want our athletes to play multiple sports. She's also very strong in the classroom, but the amount of time she has to spend on homework and then high school practice after and then club on the weekends her life has become nothing but sports and school. And so at some point, there's a burnout because you feel as though you're missing out on everything else around you. 
and you're not able to have those quote high school moments of you don't feel like you can go to the high school football game because you have to do school work. And it's reminding them that it's okay to take a break once in a while and that there are ways to manage your time and it's okay to say, no, I, I can't do all of this because I want to also have fun. There's, it's, we try and teach a balance too. I think that's really fascinating because, you know, one of the misconceptions in my work is that I, I simply talk about food and diet and that I simply talk about exercise. And those are the, the ways to get healthy. You know, but there is also like getting enough sleep and and managing stress. And the one that I'm finding is emerging more and more, and I, I see it with, with my clients, is social relationships. And, you know, that's a piece of, if you look at like the functional medicine model that like has to be in place in order for people to kind of have like a real sense of strong foundational health. So it's interesting that you say that, that these girls are putting so much pressure on themselves starting at a, at a pretty young age and not recognizing that those social relationships, if they're not there as well, like they are already starting to burn out by, by high school age, it sounds like. Right. Like you, you would think that I spend a lot of my time diet and exercise and how to improve this skill and that skill. And we really use our practice sessions and our games as our teaching moments for leadership, sportsmanship, their skill, um, how to improve it. Um, but the conversations and the emailing and the touching base with college coaches on their behalf I have to also get to know the child to understand what could be the best fit for them. Not everyone is meant to play at the collegiate level, or maybe they want to play at the collegiate level, but they really want to do marine biology. Well, our options for playing field hockey at the collegiate level and marine biology have just shrunk drastically. So because there aren't that many schools that allow it. So it's, trying to learn about my athletes, know what they're really their interest is, how to work through their day-to-day -day life, picking up when they're having a bad practice, what is affecting them, what is making them do that. We have discussions about when you walk onto the field, field hockey is supposed to be your happy place and you're allowed to leave everything else in your life at the door for whether it's an hour, two hours, whether it's a single game, but that Field hockey is a form of exercise. It's com there's camaraderie. There's a relationship with the coach and your teammates, and all of this is supposed to be a healthy and positive environment. And in some ways, is a stress reliever. So for myself as an athlete, being on teams was actually and participating and working out and doing all these things was a stress reliever for me more so than it was anxiety inducing than it can be for some. I'm not only teaching the sport of field hockey, I'm teaching so many other things. Yeah, it seems like there's so many, like just good life skills that are being, you know, it's kind of like you're knocking on the front door with a field hockey stick and a ball, but coming around the back door with like, here's how to be a leader. Here's how to be confident. 
here's how to be a good sport, even when you're, you didn't perform as well as you wanted to that day. Here's how to train here. Like, and I mean, it even sounds like in a lot of ways that you're touching on, on self-care. We also, for our coaching staff, we hire current and post-collegiate athletes. And we do so in one because their knowledge of the game and the sport, but also they're an example of what you can be. And they're a role model. And each of them is very different. And each of them has had a different journey to where how they got to where they are. Um, right now, we have a former Division One player working for us. And her primary job right now is she's a lawyer. No way. But on the side, she loves the sport of field hockey and wants to give back to what what helped her become who she is today. And so working with our eight-year-olds all the way to 18, I have a 26-year-old lawyer working with them who also played at the Division One level. So it's showing them that field hockey can still be a part of your life. Sports can still be a part of your life for forever. It doesn't end at the high school door of graduation or the collegiate door of graduation, that there is an extension of sports for forever and the impact that they have. And in part, those who are either high school or collegiate athletes are some of the most successful people in the world. Um, and companies often seek them out because of their um, being reliable, their time management, their team involvement, um, how to resolve conflict. There's all these life skills that you learn, and you might not even know that you're learning while you're a part of it. Yeah, because being a team in in some sense is kind of like being in a big old like 20-part marriage some days, right? <laughs> Where it's right. like everyone's got different <laughs> opinions about what, what should happen. And, you know, things have to get reconciled. Things have to get negotiated to where the whole team can move forward as a unit. Right. And there there can be um there can be rivalry and competition. It's interesting that you bring this up, Sarah, because there's actually a book sitting next to me on the bookshelf that's called Tripping the Prom Queen, The Truth About Women and Rivalry. And, you know, I I thought of it, it's funny because it's, it's bright blue and it was sitting there. And I, when I was yeah. thinking up questions for our interview, I sort of was tilting back in my chair and it kept catching my eye. And I'm like, wait a minute, Sarah is the perfect person to sort of ask about this. Because I think sometimes there is a notion that when you put a bunch of women in a room or on a team together, that it's not always what you expect will happen. You know, that everyone's going to be so supportive and lovey-dovey and promoting their teammates and things like that. Now, admittedly, it's in my my to-be-read pile, but What's been your experience with rivalry between girls and women? And, you know, maybe has it been different? You know, does it look different in middle school than it does in high school than it does at the at the collegiate level? Yeah, I think that it varies. And as humans, as women, we, at each age, it kind of affects us differently or is shown differently. Um when I think about rivalry, I also think about competition and they are synonyms and both can be vicious. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and these are, these are girls wielding sticks. <laughs> yes. So I believe, I believe there's a difference between the two though. I see rivalry amongst opposing teams 
and not individuals. And I see competition amongst individuals within a team. Got it. Got it. So if used in a positive manner, both can have a beneficial outcome on what is at stake. So for an example would be a healthy rivalry between two schools teams or two clubs teams can motivate players on the team to bring their best for that game. It pumps them up. It gets them going. They want to beat them again for the fifth, sixth year in a row. They know they got beat last year, so they want to win this year. They don't want to go to overtime. There's lots of like goal settings and stuff that can happen with a, with a positive rivalry. Okay. And then if used in a negative way, it can promote bad behavior, poor sportsmanship, and performance. So there's a happy balance to having – I lean towards promoting positive <laughs> rivalry to get my players pumped up. And I think – from what I know of you and your work, like you definitely are putting your your eggs in that basket. But I imagine that's not always what you see or get back from the players. No, no. And, and when you recognize that it's not what you're getting, you have to address it. And as I say, nip it in the bud and be done with it. Because if you allow it to fester, it only gets worse and worse and becomes a habit. And it's a, it's a bad habit, and it's not one that you want to have for the rest of your life. So if you can help young girls identify it early, they're most likely not to continue with it. They'll understand what, you know, you try and change, change their perspective of it and use it in a different light. So what, is, what does that look like? So if, if people listening, like what are some of the go-to tools and techniques that you use when you're seeing that kind of rivalry because whether it's on a team or whether it's in an office or whether it's with a bunch of women volunteering at their church like this kind of stuff comes up and what if what have you seen that's been really effective for you well so i so rivalry is what i see between teams and then competition is what i personally see between individuals and competition within a team or a group of women, um, a group of friends, whatever it is, it can be, it can be an advantage um, if used correctly. So, for instance, I will have to choose an A, B, and C team. And so everybody's out there on the court, everyone's giving or the field, and they're giving them, they're doing their best. Then you get the side talk. What does that mean when you say, oh, so and so? Did you see her? Oh, she can't get to the post. She can't get, she, her passing isn't very good. Or So there's this like nitpicky stuff happening with each other. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Instead of, there's ways to, re, to phrase what you're saying. And also, we don't need to talk about each other in a poor manner to somebody else. So what you're seeing, what you're describing is sort of like the gossiping that can kind of happen. Like, yes. Okay. Like they're not <laughs> on performing. a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. I am. I imagine with high school girls, I mean, that stuff runs pretty rampant. I mean, I'd like, I'd like to think at a collegiate level, like women are growing into their own and becoming more confident, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's still pretty prevalent there as well. Unfortunately, I still see it even as an adult in different things that I do whether it's a work setting, whether it's a volunteer setting, whether it's friends. 
as women, I think that we can be really mean to each other, whether it's meant to be intentional or not. Agreed. Agreed. From what I've seen, the vicious part of competition and rivalry comes from jealousy. So the gossiping is because they're jealous of what that player is capable of doing, or they're jealous that they didn't make the A team and they made the B team. And also some of it in part comes from from home. I only have so much influence on a child and so do other coaches and so do teammates. And a lot of values and morals and what is okay and not okay to say comes from home. And so as a woman and raising young women, um, even though I don't have a daughter of my own, I, I try to be as positive as possible with our athletes on all levels while being honest. And honesty is not, is not gossiping. Honesty is stating the facts. And so there's a very, there's a big difference. If a player says, well, coach, why, why does so-and-so keep going in that spot? And it's, well, she does X, Y, and Z. Well, why am I not going in? I think I do that. Well, you actually are missing A, B, and C. We need you to improve on the passing to this specific spot or so it's also being like very clear with players. And it sounds like also very direct, like gossiping is sort of two people talking about another person. Whereas like you're just saying like, okay, I hear your gossip here. I hear like I'm overhearing your gossip. Here's what's going down. This person is doing X, Y, and Z. And you're, you need to work on and focus your efforts on A, B, and C. And so you're, you're actually addressing the people gossiping as opposed to kind of just letting it, let it, letting it happen. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Any, anything else that you want to add to this topic or anything else that you've seen work really well? Because this kind of competition between women is not anything new and it, and it definitely exists outside of sports as, as you pointed out. Right. Well, I, I often remind myself and my players that having good competition is a plus and should be used as a motivator. Got it. So instead of gossiping about the person, like use that to sort of look at your own skill set. Yeah. To light your fire. To light your fire to be better than you are. Even if you're the number one player. There's somebody else out there that's better than you, whether they're on your team or another team, whether they're in your office or another office. There's always somebody that's better at something. So it should be used as a motivator. Figure out what they're doing. Why are they better? What are they doing that I'm not doing? Ask them. Instead of being jealous and gossiping about it, ask them what they're doing. Ask them how they got so good at this. Use it to motivate. Use it to create conversation. Use it to learn from one another. It can be a really positive. I believe competition can be a really positive part to an office environment, to a team, and to our day-to-day life. And especially like what you just said around using it to also connect you to other women. Like you can sit there and be in the kitchenette at work gossiping about, well, so-and-so's just Miss Perfect at whatever. And instead of sitting there and gossiping about it, actually going to that woman and saying, how did you get so good at that? Can you, you know, can you teach me? Right. And 
and creating more of a, a connection as opposed to just that continued sort of siloed competition. Right, right. Very cool. Very cool. And Sarah, you know, we've we've talked a lot about rivalry and competition, but you work with a lot of young women. How do you balance being a role model overall with being a mortal or, as I like to say, a perfectly imperfect woman? <laughs> I think perfectly imperfect <laughs> is a great way to put We it. all are. <laughs> yeah. So I try my best to lead by example and staying true to my morals and my values. I'll be the first one to tell you I make mistakes because I'm human. It is what it is. Um, however, by recognizing my own mistakes, I have an opportunity to learn from them and to also share what I've learned. My players are free to ask me whatever they would like. My parents who are of my players are free to ask me whatever they'd like. I'm willing to share. I'll be honest. I'll tell you my experience. And it doesn't matter on what level it is. It can be, you know, hey, coach, I'm getting ready to go on this overnight for a recruiting visit at such and such college. Like, I'm a little nervous about what if they ask me to drink? What if they ask me to do X, Y, and Z? And so I'll sit down and I'll have a conversation with the child about my experience on my recruiting visits. I'm not only a coach, I'm a therapist. <laughs> yeah, you, you sort of are informally. <laughs> um, I'm a mom. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I play, depending on what player it is, I play a different role for each of them. And I can play multiple roles. And so from each of those, they can see me in different lights. But my mistakes have allowed me to be who I am and allow me to share what I've learned and hopefully others can learn from it or identify that it's okay to make a mistake, but what can we do to solve it or what can we do to make it better? Or to your point, learn from it. I mean, I, I know in my life, the stuff that I have screwed up over the years has taught me way more in terms of skills or social skills, or, I mean, the the lessons are almost infinite, you know, that I wouldn't have gotten had I done something perfectly the first time. Right. Like, there is so much learning to be had in those experiences. And it, it sounds like you're really good about being open with them, you know, in terms of, you know, I, I imagine the question some days, like, go from, oh my God, I got my period at practice. What do I do? Like, you know, you know, all the way to your point, like what if they want me to drink or smoke pot on my recruiting visit? And, And everything else in between. And some will share more with you than others. Some will be more open with you. And again, that's me evaluating and understanding my athletes and knowing each and every one of them. And that's how, you're able to pull a group of people together to achieve one goal. And how do you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you know, that you check in with your morals and values and that's what kind of helps keep you grounded and, and staying a role model. What does that look like to you? Like, you know, like in my world, like we hear people talking about like, 
you know, your core values and, and defining them and, and working with them. But what is it? What does it look like in the day to day? I make my decisions based off what I believe is right and wrong. I guess if I feel guilty about something, I know that I'm not, that something's off, that I, I messed up, I made a mistake, whether it's based on my values or my morals, or it's I just feel bad about something because I'm not okay with the, dis- the end result or the decision that was made. I think that the morals and values part for me comes in that many of them are just so ingrained in me. It's my natural, it's just habit. But then there are others where there's really tough decisions that I have to make as a coach. So for myself, I'm somebody who loves information. Like I want to have the best, I want to make the best decision based off my knowledge, my smarts. I want to have all the information. And then I kind of like, then that's when I start piecing it together. It's like, okay, am I going to make this decision because of the information I have? Am I going to make this decision because my gut says that it's right or wrong? Or am I making this decision off my emotions? And sometimes it's a little of all of it. And then there's times when I don't have time to process any of it because I have to make a decision so fast on the fly Um, in the coaching world that it's like instinct and in the moment I make the, I make the decision based off what I think is right and wrong at that very moment. So what are, what are some examples of those kind of like decisions that you're making? Like I've got to make this decision right now. A lots of those decisions come into play when I have to, I'm in the middle of a game, for instance, for high school, you're in the championship game or semifinals and it's about winning. And I've now sat kids on the bench for four, five games. And in some ways, I feel guilty that I'm not able to put that child in. However, my job is to win. That's what I've been for the high school. That's what I've been told. So my job is to win and get us as far as we go at the varsity level. So it sounds like that, like it's those moments where there are competing priorities, like your boss is saying your job is to win. Your, you, is it your heart or your gut that is kind of saying, but I want this player to have some experience in these high-pressure games? It's my heart and then also a little bit of, well, maybe they do. Maybe they are capable of doing it. But I know when I'm in it and I'm in the middle of a game, I'm making the, the best decision I possibly can on what is presented to me at that time by the opposing team, by how my players are playing, by their moods, by their ability, by their warm up. So you're picking up on the, on their energy as well. Like, so not just like, okay, it looks like they're healthy. It looks like they're stretching properly. It looks like they're warming up, but also like, is their head in the game? Is their energy there that night? Correct. Correct. Got it. Got it. So that's a lot of sensory stuff to have to take in. How does it register for you? I'm always fascinated with how people make decisions and how they sit with them. Like, like for me, for example, when I, you know, when I'm in a session and my clients and I are trying to figure out like what direction to go, you know, there's, I have to be a little bit more instinctual, like you were describing, like when you're coaching, like in a game. Like you don't have time to analyze everything at a really deep level, 
But I know like when I have time, I'm sort of like you as well. Like I like to take in a lot of information. I try to always like if it's a big decision, get at least one night of sleep around it. Like not try to make a decision same day. What does what does your process look like when you have to make bigger decisions? Yeah, so I would say my especially for my business when it's running the day to day, the financials, the facility contracts, all the different aspects that I manage from more of the business side. I gather as much information as I can and I try and make those decisions on based off my smarts and my knowledge and the information provided or that I find. My personal life would be more of my gut and my heart. Um, so that's that's the more intuitive my process heart, for you. Right. I would say my gut plays more into my business with my smarts. So I would say smarts and gut for my business and guts and heart for my personal life. Got it. And what do you do when there's when there's incomplete information? Because I know like you and I like data, you know, for, for people listening, like, you know, Sarah does a lot of the back end office stuff, the financial pieces, the making the models and the spreadsheets and the projections and costing and all of that. So like you and I are data women, but like what, like in a perfect world, we would have all the data that we need, but in real life and especially in (laughs) entrepreneurial real life, that's not always, that's not always the most time or cost effective option. No, no, not at all. Right. (laughs) No. (laughs) What, what do you do when you're in that spot where there's like, I just don't have the data that I need. I don't have all the pieces that I need. I still make my decision based off what I have. I just, There's a point in which, okay, I'm not going to have all the information, but a decision has to be made. And so I'm going to look at what I have and, and then I'll sometimes sit there and say, okay, well, what if this, what if that? And then I have to put the what ifs aside and say, this is what I'm given. Are you willing to move forward? Are you willing, are you, do you need to sit back? And when I say move forward or sit back, it's, is it a, is it a go or a no go, I guess. Um, or take, taking action. Do I take action or not take action? Yeah, taking action or not. Right. Got right. it. Got it. It's really hard when you don't have all the information because you really want it. And, but it's, as especially as an entrepreneur, it's not always available to you. Um, or it's not, it could be available to you, but there's a time crunch. There's a time frame in which you have to make these decisions as well. And so, that puts pressure and that influences the decision of when you're going to make it and how you're going to make it as well. And so when there is a time frame or I don't have the data I need, I have to solely go based off what I have. And that's probably when my gut comes into play the most is when I don't have everything I need. So you're like, I have 60% of the information I need and now gut, it's on you. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's like, all right, are we going to spend the bottle or what? So, Yeah, and you know, you wear a lot of hats as an entrepreneur. Like, I mean, I think people, like when they when they see what you do, think you're just out on the field all the time, out on the practice field, coaching games on the sidelines, like talking to college coaches, like, doing the tournaments like that you're 
you're solely that part of the business. But like, as we touched on, you actually do a lot of the other, the other parts of the business. And that can be really tough because I'm a solo practitioner. You know, I, granted, I was a CPA for 12 years. So, you know, doing my books and records is a pretty easy task for me each month. And I, you know, I can keep my records in a way that makes it easy for me to do that. But being an entrepreneur can be really difficult, especially when you are wearing so many of the hats. And I know there have been times, and, and you and I have have gone for a walk and, and talked about this, where it just, you get into an entrepreneurial funk. I mean, has that happened for you? And, and what was that experience like? Yeah, I've been in an entrepreneurial funk, and it can be difficult and they can occur when you're least expecting them. Um, most of my funks come from being bored with something. When I'm hit with a funk, I begin to get in a perpetual cycle of questioning myself, my career, how I handle things. I ask myself what I did wrong. Um, in the past, I would also pick and pick at the funk like it was a project and I had all the tools to fix it. And then I realized Sometimes I could have hundreds of tools and skills and not a single one could fix the funk. <laughs> like you, you look in your toolbox and you're like, great, I need a saw, but I have 47 hammers in here. Right. <laughs> or where's that one screwdriver that I used last time? For some reason, I got rid of that tool. Um, <laughs> How has it weighed on you personally? Emotionally, it's very draining. It wears on you. Um it's emotionally draining. It's tiring. Sometimes I can become an introvert and I'm an extrovert for the most part. It's a process that like your mind and your body go through. And so for me, I, I often have to remind myself that when in a funk, I have to take a step back, relax a moment. And maybe there's nothing to question. Maybe I'm getting frustrated for no reason. Maybe I don't have a tool to fix it. it sounds silly sometimes, but we don't always have to fix everything. Well um, said. <laughs> well said, my friend. As a type A woman, um, you better believe I want to have a solution or an answer to everything. Like yesterday. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday wasn't soon enough either. So learning there isn't always a solution or answer has been a process for me. And sometimes I have to remind myself I've, I've been in a funk before. And when I come out of it on the other side, everything's okay. And during a funk, I have to push through and continue to work on the day-to-day -day operations. And maybe I'm not as productive with my long-term goals during this time. But what I keep is everything is at status quo. I keep everything there, keep everything moving. But it's those like bigger picture things that actually probably throw me into the funk because I'm bored with it or I'm frustrated with it's not working. But eventually I come out of it and that's when I have an aha moment of what I was in a funk about. And often funks can last a single week. They can last months. It just depends on the type of funk. I remember a friend asking, telling me this summer, she's a newer entrepreneur, and she said, oh my gosh, Sarah, I just feel like I'm in such a funk these days. I, my business, I'm really not sure about it. And the way she was describing it to me, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've gone through before. And 
like I said, it happens unexpectedly. And she was doing the same thing. She was questioning herself, her career, how she handles things, what she'd done wrong. And it dawned on me that lots of us as entrepreneurs probably go through this, but it's not talked about. So true. And when we were talking with each other, it was finally like, sometimes you just have to ride the funk. Just ride with it. It's a wave and you got to ride it out and it will, quote, fix itself because we don't have all the tools always. Yeah. Even though we want to say we do. And I, I think it's something important that you're you're mentioning here, and I'm, I'm glad this came up, is that a lot of entrepreneurs don't talk about it. I forget the article, and I'll, I'll have to go try to find it for the show notes. It was talking about like the link between depression and entrepreneurship. And, you know, in my world, like in terms of like health and lifestyle stuff, you know, Yes, I work with most of my clients by phone or Skype. So that allows me geographic flexibility. So for example, like when my husband Craig gets to go to a conference in Montreal, like he did a a few weeks ago, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, P.S., I was able to go along because I had a hotel room during the day while he was doing his conference stuff and Wi-Fi and was able to get work done. You know, and I think, you know, there's in my world, there's all these like images of like entrepreneurs or just, you know, that like we all work from Bali or somewhere in Fiji or like, you know, that it's like this like dreamlike existence. And, you know, I I have to laugh because it's easy sometimes when you're seeing like that kind of perception of entrepreneurship to be like, wait a minute, I'm working in a windowless room right now to record this podcast, you know, so there's no sound bleed and like other noise and stuff like that. Like I am totally not in Bali, (laughs) like on the beach doing my work today. But I think um, it can set an expectation for that funk to happen. And then also that that funk can straight up feel like or mimic the symptoms of depression. You know, like like what you were talking about, and I've definitely had moments where when things aren't going well for, you know, I have a bad couple of months or whatever, the last thing I want to be doing is like out and about having everyone going, how's business? <laughs> and, and like, you know, just not wanting to put myself in that position of like, well, it's been a really horrible couple of months. You know, here's where something started smoking, something blew up. You know, my phone stopped ringing for a month or two, you know, like these things that are are challenges, but it's, it's hard to bring it up because sometimes or hard to know that it's happening for other people around unless like someone gives you this like small opening to talk about it, right? Right. And it often comes up because somebody asks you a question and then you don't necessarily say that you're in a funk, but says they'll mention something to you like, Hey, I've been in this funk before where da da da. And then all of a sudden the person will unload on you. <laughs> like me too. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's where I am right now. <laughs> I think that we as entrepreneurs, in some ways we share certain things, but often some put on a really good front that everything's okay and is fine and business is great. And, but really, well, everybody, every human has a fight. We're all fight. We all have a fight, an internal fight. And most of the time, nobody shares it. And 
you know, it's just like when you walk into a coffee shop and the person at the, the cashier is just like so rude. And I have to remind myself, they have a fight and I don't know what it is, but today something must just not be going their way. Yeah, like you have to think like, you know, did their car like, dro- you know, did their car drop dead on the way to work and they had to walk like the last three miles to get to right. work late, you know? Like, all right. <laughs> okay, he's having a bad day. Fine. But there's a point in which like, it's okay to share the emotional side of being an entrepreneur and the highs and lows of it. Yeah, that aren't that aren't shared. And especially among women, I think that we we hold things very close to ourselves um, and probably out of protection and and being a, a mortal or perfectly perfect instead of perfectly imperfect. But yeah, there's often this perception that everything for as women we're everything's fine, but there can be moments, emotional moments, funks, all kinds of things, just like anybody else in any other type of job. Absolutely. I I mean, I think there's sometimes like this, like, like I had touched on like this glorification of entrepreneurship. And it's like, it's not always, it's not always fun and games. Like, you know, and as someone that came from working, you know, in the early days of my career, working for the largest accounting firm in the world, you had resources. It's like, you know, if your team was getting too crunched, like you could bring in another person to help, you know, do a couple of analyses that you weren't getting to, you know, or you could you could boost things. But when you're an entrepreneur, you're like, okay, my budget is this and I have 24 hours in a day just like everybody else. So I've got to pick and choose. Right. You know, you have to constantly be measuring those two things, like the resource of money and time to make sure that you're you're keeping things afloat. Sarah, how how have you turned the funk around? Like what have you found most helpful? Like or or what have you seen, you know, from other women that you've you've talked to about this topic? So for myself, I often just have to write it out and I just keep pushing forward with the regular day to day, whether it's really hard or it's easy. And the days kind of change depending on my mood and what's happening in the rest of my life. But a funk, really for me, I have to write it out. I can't continue to question myself, what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, or um, questioning the things around me. I just kind of have to continue pursuing the day-to-day operations and just write it out because I have spent more time trying to quote fix it before and in the end I was never able to fix it and I think in part some of my funks lasted longer because I was trying to hammer away at what was really wrong whereas if I write it out it ends up being much shorter. So what I'm what I'm kind of hearing when you say write it out are do you mean do you mean like keeping up with what needs to get done on a day-to-day basis. And I know I know a few minutes ago you kind of said like sort of taking back the pressure on some of the bigger or kind of like ad hoc projects, you know, to kind of give yourself some some space or perspective. Like am I am I pulling that all together correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. How do you know yeah. how do you know when to step back? Because that's something, because I work with a lot of type A women and I 
am a type A woman and a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> um, stepping back has not always been my strong suit. Like sometimes I will hammer away at something to the point of like exhaustion. I've done that a few times in my life. Um, how do you know when to step back or to put something down or just be like, not now? Maybe that's the, the other piece. When I, when I become frustrated. When I become extremely frustrated with something, that's when I have to set it aside. And there's a point in which there's two different types of frustration. There's frustration because something's annoying that day. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> just, just like, chafes. Right. It's just like, ugh, really? Another one of those days where like 10 things pop up that weren't expected. Or there's the frustration part where like, I'm just in a mood where it's just like nothing feels right. Or I'm just frustrated with everything it could be as planned, but everything irritates me. And that's when I know, step back, take a deep breath, and remember something's not right, and it will it will pass, but you got to keep going with the day-to-day or else everything falls. So recognizing that the funk is also not permanent is pretty huge. I know you yeah. just sort of slipped that in right there, but I think right. that's something <laughs> I think that's something worth, you know, highlighting with our little audio yellow marker. Yeah. But recognizing that like, okay, I feel this way today. I'm frustrated. I don't want to be doing these tasks or this project right now. But okay, it can wait a few days. I'll come back to it and just focus on what what needs to get done. Right. Right. There's like urgent tasks and non-urgent tasks and identifying those is huge because for me in my day to day, I can quickly get sidetracked if I don't identify if something is urgent and non-urgent. And what I mean by non-urgent is that it can wait a week. It can wait a month. Yeah. <laughs> urgent. No urgent one is, is no like, one is going to die because of this. Right. Uh, <laughs> the lights will stay on. Yes, yes. Everybody will make it to practice. Um, the urgent is is some of the day to day. The it ha- this email has to be done because it matters for this coming weekend. Whether it's a tournament and sending out the schedule, or it's making sure coordinating all of our coaches and our schedules for four different sites, and those are urgent things. Urgent. It, day-to-day operations. And then there's the like non-urgent day-to-day that, okay, if I don't get to it today, it's all right. Um, But I can definitely be sidetracked when things come up. If I don't identify, if an email comes in and I'm like, oh, I have to do this. And it's like, actually, everybody doesn't need an immediate response. And that's something else that I've had to, to teach myself over the time, over the years is that we live in a society that is like instant gratification is what everybody wants. And that if I was able to give everybody instant gratification, all of my clients, I would never sleep, (laughs) I would never eat, and I would have no personal life and no work-life balance. I guess knowing that the funks pass, understanding that that probably what I'm in a funk about is a non-urgent thing, a non-urgent item or task, and so it can wait. And it will wait until the funk is over, and then there'll be an aha moment and I figure out why I was in the funk or why I was so frustrated. And it all kind of comes together. And then I move forward. And funks, I wouldn't say that I'm 
get in a funk often, they, they come at really random times when you're least expecting them. And for myself, it's probably, I've probably, my worst funk has probably been a three month stretch and my shortest has been a week. Yeah. But I've also been an entrepreneur now for five years. And so if you think about that over the time, it's not such bad odds, right? It's not such bad odds. (laughs) So I think it's like every, I mean, somebody who works for someone else who works for a corporate business. I think that you can be in a funk there as well. Absolutely. I mean, I've had people come to me and they're like, I hate my job. And, you know, it's it's gotten to a place where it's eroding their health and they're starting to be symptomatic. So that's why they kind of reached out to me. And as we sort of layer in some good habits and and sustainable habits, you know, then it like and as they're feeling better and their energy is coming up and their mood is coming up and they're sort of pulling out of that funk sometimes they become, you know, then they start to look at like, well, why, why am I crying about having to go to work on Sunday nights? Like, why am I like looking at my email on Sundays and just like not sleeping going into Monday, you know, and start to unpack like what it is, like what, what's feeling unsatisfactory in the work that they're doing, whether it's as an entrepreneur or in the workplace. And sometimes like, it's just a tweak, like it's a change in, it's, you know, either negotiating for something as simple as like, like I've seen with clients who are moms, like, you know, when we started talking about their, when they felt unsatisfied with work, and it was like creating this crazy level of stress for them, you know, it was, the fix was negotiating a start time 20 minutes later in the morning because, you know, the daycare drop off and when work started and traffic, it was just sort of cataclysmic every morning. And so like that was a simple change. And then they went, they came out of that funk and went back to like, well, I like all these other parts of my job. It turns out it was just that morning routine that was absolutely miserable. And so I I think you make a great point that it's, you can be in those kinds of, you can have that kind of shift in relationship or, or ease or flow around the work relationship just as much as, you know, any other aspect of our life. And they come and go. Yeah. And they change over time based off our environments and what has, what has changed in our career and our personal life. So it's, it's kind of a continuing thing that you can expect at some point that there will always be that a funk could occur. And I don't mean that to say that like, Oh, you should be worried that one is going to come, but based off like what's happening in our lives or that simple thing of adjusting their schedule, it might shift when something in their job changes or their kid changes childcare centers or whatever it is. So we have to be cognizant that like, just because it's fixed right now doesn't mean another funk won't occur at some other point in two years, in three months. It varies for every person. Yeah, because there's all these like environmental inputs happening, right? Like to your point, like the, the daycare closes, you know, in the example with my client, that daycare closes and they have to find another. Well, then it changes the constraints that you're dealing with and then can affect your level of stress. Right. Sarah, I want to I want to ask you a question. We've been kind of talking about like bracing ourselves for the entrepreneurial funk. 
But for women listening who may not know this about you, you just finished up your MBA. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And MBAs like metrics and measurements, and we've kind of touched on that as well. But can can you share a little bit about how you measure success for yourself? Yeah, I love um, I love metrics and measurements. I'm a numbers girl, <laughs> and I use them. I use them to set goals for myself within my business. Um, I use them in my personal life too, uh, like for my personal budgeting. But success for me can be measured in many ways, and so I define success for myself as continual personal improvement. Um, if I stay status quo, I'm not succeeding. Improving myself in all areas of my life is what makes me successful. So improving my business in different ways and whatever those goals are that I set for myself, that's me being successful. If I learn how to create a new system or process within my business, that's a successful moment for me. If I learn a new recipe that makes my cooking easier or me eating more meals at home, then that's success for me. I don't necessarily always see success as like I'm making $200,000 a year and I have this car and that car. More of it is about how I feel, about the work that I do, and the impact that I'm having. Ah, got it. So it, that's really important. I think, you know, your your point, like so often it's like, well, there's the BMW and there's the six-bedroom house and I I must be successful but it could be a hollow form of success based on what you're what you're saying like that impact is important to you and and some of the other metrics that you're using how do you do you have i, I guess how do do you have a formal process of sitting down and thinking about like where you want to be successful i think for my business i sit down on a regular basis and create goals for it. My business partner and I create goals for the business together. And then we create goals for ourselves within the business. So each of us is responsible for different portions of the business. And so we have an overriding business goal or several. And then for each of us, depending on what our main focuses are, we each have our own goals um, within that. And for me, most of the goals are based around metrics and measurements, data, numbers, budgets, and I'm always looking to beat them. <laughs> so there's like a, a goal for me is like, all right, we've budgeted to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, all right, okay, we can do this. However, how am I going to make it that much better? Like, where am I going to save the money there? What can I get for this price? Like, I'm always looking on how to squeeze the most out of everything. Got it. And especially as a small business um, and with cash flows and stuff, it's really important to have all of that for two, around two years out. And so I'm always playing with those things. And then for myself, I don't know that I off, sit down enough to think about where I really want to go. I could probably do it more, and especially coming off of finishing my MBA. Huge question that I keep getting is like, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And it's like, Actually, I'm just going to sit in the moment for a little while. 
Yeah, like, I just busted my ass for two years. I'm going to enjoy this for a hot minute, right? I am going to veg on some TV and, um, <laughs> no, but it is for me, actually, this last like two or three months, two months now that I've been out is me sitting in the moments, figuring out a new routine and looking and setting the next set of goals for myself. I think the last large goal was finishing my MBA. And when I was in it, I couldn't necessarily think much further than that. Yep. Um, there was excitement about, oh, what could I do after it? Can I get another job? Can I start another business? Can I have my business that I currently have and another job? All these different pieces. But then when I finished, I was a little like, oh, okay, this is a weird feeling. There's, I, my schedule has completely shifted and I was told I'd have more time, but I'm not really sure where that time has gone. Um, <laughs> what I've spent it on yet. So now I'm sitting in it in the moment, enjoying the fact that I have completed it and reevaluating what it is I want for myself, both personally and for my career. And so I think over the next few months, it will start to evolve. And I take the time to sit down now and either journal or um, just write some notes about what I want to do. And in some ways I think that it happens organically that I'm a checklist person. I like to check everything off. I want to check every box and <laughs> highlight every task on the list today that I finished it. Yay. It's like <laughs> the, the all holy checkbox, right? <laughs> right. It's like um, if I could get an app that like blew it up like a bomb or something, that'd be pretty cool. But um <laughs> like disappeared. But my life can't be checkboxes. I've realized there are certain things in it that yes, they will be finishing my master's check. I got it done. Um, starting a business check. But there's so many other things that are completely unpredictable. And often some of the best things in life happen organically, if you just allow them to happen. And so right now I'm trying to live in the moment enjoy the knowledge that I gained these last two years, put them to work in my MBA or into my business and then go from there. So I think if you talk to me in another three to four months, I might have a better answer for how I define success in measuring my goals or how I um, process them and decide what they are. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think your answer is amazing because I think, you know, especially in the type A circles that I run in, there's this, like, I see women check the box and not really ever take a moment to even celebrate, like, look what I did this week, you know, like on a, on a Friday, just simply saying, like, what did I accomplish this week? Because so often we're like, check, okay, what's next? And like zooming towards it. So I, I think your answer is amazing in that you, one, congratulations for finishing your MBA, but even bigger congratulations for taking the time to just be like, okay, now's the time to take new information and perspectives in and kind of just organically sitting in that space and not forcing it forward. That's awesome to hear. And I think what you just mentioned is something I hear behind closed doors a lot. So I, I love that someone other than me said this in a very highly practical and specific way. 
So thank you for, for thank putting you. that out there. Yeah. And Sarah, you are a busy woman. And I know like, you know, we're sort of saying like you're taking this time to to be a little bit more reflective right now, but you are by no means like this unscheduled lazy ass right now. Like I know you are still busting your hump on a daily basis, you know, in the business, even with just like the day-to-day stuff. So I, I want to ask, what are some of your favorite non-negotiable acts of self-care? Like what helps you decompress or what helps you recharge on the regular? Yeah, so um, I have to go to hot yoga at least once a week. And on a really <laughs> great week, I'm there three or four times. Whoa. Uh, yeah. So hot yoga for me is 90 minutes of, of quote, sanity, I guess. I think of nothing else but what is actually happening in that room. It's one of the few places that my brain can sit still, um, which I find very hard. Uh, in the past, I've actually had difficulty falling asleep before because I couldn't turn my brain off. Um, so the 90 minutes of, of hot yoga allows me to turn it off, refuel. It also plays in, you know, it helps my endorphins. It helps me think that that going not only helps my mind, but it also helps my body. And so there's a mind-body balance happening and it helps rejuvenate me for the um, for the week. So I have to get there at least once a week. On a good week, it's three times. Impressive. Uh, Impressive. <laughs> Hot yoga has never been my thing. So I'm, I'm saluting you. <laughs> Most people say it's not their thing. And I'm like, I love this thing. I love going. Um, I also enjoy the fact that like, they talk to you the whole time. So my body is just used to doing it. I don't even have to think about it anymore. It just naturally happens. So that really also helps with turning my brain off. The other thing that I find really important is that I can be tired at night or I can just want to stay in on the weekends. And actually, that's the worst for me. I need at least one or two nights, quote, out. And that's going to dinner with friends, having a date night. It's just something about being out, being around other people that it's not my day to day. It's not it's not work. Um, It can be two hours. It can be all night and going dancing. But I need that time to to be with my friends and rejuvenate and and know what's going on in their life. So those are the two things that really kind of recharge me. Nice. Nice. And I, I want to be cognizant of our time because I, I know you're busy and hopefully you can get to hot yoga with the rest of today. <laughs> um, I want to run some champagne questions by you. And these are questions that I like to ask every guest and kind of just get their perspective on things. And so there's there's really no right or wrong answer. It's, like I said, it's just to see different perspectives on sa- the same questions. And so what song pumps you up or soothes you the most? So I get my fair share of today's top hits from the high school girls singing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the favorites recent was Closer by the Chainsmokers. <laughs> Um, I also know how to dab. Uh, so (laughs) I personally like, I like a variety of music and I don't have one specific song that generally pumps me up or soothes me. It's all kind of depending on my mood. So I, um, I grew up on country, so I love, um, I love my fair share there. 
my brain is often um, consumed with today's uh, hit hits. That's for sure. <laughs> Sung by so, a bus full of high school girls. Yes. <laughs> well, this year we also had a we had a big speaker, so they would always hook up their their phones and we would you know play off Pandora or their list or whatever. So I got quite a fair share of it. Awesome, so. awesome. Yeah. What book, film, other type of art do you go back to for inspiration? So inspiration for me comes from reading. I read a lot of nonfiction or like how-to books or other people's experiences. I learn from others and I learn from facts. Um, I've always been one that the fiction, I can read fiction, but it's not, I enjoy nonfiction more. So I'd say like my inspiration comes from others and the, and reading about others' experiences um, more so than any other type of art. Got it. Has anything stuck out to you like that you're just, you loved up like crazy? So I haven't, um, it's on my to read book or list um, is I'll Scream Later by Marlene Matlin. Um, so for the last two years, all I've read is business books. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's uh, true so I could give you a fair share of uh, uh of Michael Porter his five forces if you'd like <laughs> um but yeah so I have like a list of you know I also have Thrive by Ariana Huffington that it's on my reading list right now so I'm interested to see what those will um what inspiration will come from those Cool, cool. Let me know what you think of them because both yeah. are, are circling on my list as well. Great. And then what's your favorite tool, app, or gadget? <laughs> so uh, since I'm speaking to like the app queen here, um, <laughs> I my phone is a wild place. <laughs> yes. Uh, I actually love Google Drive. I love my – so everything for our business is for the most part – synced with Google Drive and um, Gmail and such. So I, we use it for almost everything. And um, for reasons of being able to share it um, and see instant edits and for phone conferences, we do a lot of phone conferences. So I can be talking to a player about their player profile or the college letter they're writing. And I'm able to use, we're both looking at it at the same time and discussing what to change and not change. Um, and then even my business partner and I, we use it for our weekly, for our weekly um, meetings and such. So, yeah, as simple as it is, it's probably the best gadget that I use on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, especially with your business because you and your business partner both work from home offices. So the fact that you can see that has got to be pretty awesome. Right. And then I'm able to share with our coaching staff and allow them to edit or not edit things depending on it. So sharing rosters and all those kinds of things is very easy to do. Cool. And you you know my insane obsession with task list organizing and tasks and how people do it. So I have to ask, how do you organize or manage your tasks on a day-to-day basis? So I still love writing mine down on a piece of paper. Um, so I routinely write a task list in a small journal at the start of every week. So the task list is divided into um, like personal and business. And then I identify which is urgent and non-urgent. 
And I really enjoy the handwriting part of it. It's just something I think it also like sets in with me and I can remember it without looking at it too sometimes. Yep. But I also enjoy crossing it off and like highlighting that I've completed it. There's great satisfaction in that. Um, (laughs) So, and then I'll go back. It's also easy for me to have everything in like one journal. And so I can go back and, you know, I take additional notes when needed on phone calls and such. And I can look back at past weeks when needing to reference something. So um, I know there's tons of apps and things I could use, but I still, there's something to be said about handwriting it to me still. No judging, no judging <laughs> from my perspective. I'm I'm just always curious what works for people. I, right. And then how would you define being a modern woman? I would say a modern woman is one who stands up for themselves and other women while pushing forward for equality and pursuing the unimaginable. Nice. <laughs> and what would, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Um, supporting each other and sharing about your personal fights. Good point. I think that we hold, um, like I had mentioned earlier in the segment, I feel like we hold a lot um, on our chest in hopes of protecting ourselves, but um, we can learn from sharing and others can learn from us. Yeah, it's a it's a funny tap dance that you have to do because you don't want to be like the downer, right? Like as right. women, we want to be part of the tribe, generally speaking. So you, it's like you don't want to be the downer, but then how many opportunities to deeply connect with another woman are we missing because we're not really talking about what's going on? Right. Good point. And I guess flipping the question around the other direction, conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? So this question can go like in many ways, but a simple one for me is like, it's truly caring what other people think of you. I think that there's still a lot of judgment um, and we're in an era of when there's a transition of women's roles and the ex- what is, quote, expected of us. And I think that the less we care about what others think about our choices, um, the more successful we could be. And if women want to learn more about you and your work, how can they do that? Um, women and or men are um, more than welcome to email me. Uh, I'm happy to start a conversation. I like knowing what other people are doing. I like being asked about what I do. So our Facebook page also for my business, Element Athletics, gives insight into what's happening like on a monthly and weekly basis with our athletes. So Very cool. And I'll make sure that I post all of those links in the show notes so people will have them. Great. But Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I was so curious to hear what you have to say, knowing that you work with women and girls of a a pretty big age span and just, you know, being a fellow entrepreneur. And I know some of these questions kind of have come out of informal questions that you and I have had while we've been out sort of walking and talking. So it's, I'm I'm so grateful that you have been so generous with your time and perspective and willing to tackle some questions that aren't always easy or the things that that people want to talk about. So deeply, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for asking me to share. Awesome.
This is Kara again. Thank you so much for tuning in. All of today's show notes can be found at levitalcoursalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. If you dug today's show or past episode, please support this podcast by going to iTunes and rating and reviewing. It's super helpful to a brand new podcast like me, and I'd be greatly appreciative for your help. And new shows, just so you know, will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer, Craig Snyder, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing, and the High Dials for performing my most excellent theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let burnout or bullshit slow you down. See you next time.